BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's the argument. I'm Jane Coaston. Demonstrations were largely peaceful across the United States overnight as hundreds of thousands of Americans continue to protest the killing of George Floyd. A passionate movement for justice is finding itself swept under the feet of rampaging and destructive mobs who have sown chaos in cities across the country. What do you want? Justice! When do you want it? Now! What do you want? Justice! When do you want it? It's been two years since George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis. An estimated 15 million people protested in the summer of 2020. And whether you remember the crowds with their hands up or the images of burning police cars, it felt like, for a moment, that all that outrage and energy might lead to change. And then, well, here we are now. So today, we're talking about protesting. What's the right way to do it? Is there a right way to do it? And how can we tell if it's successful? To think through these very big questions, I'm joined by my friend David French. He's a senior editor at The Dispatch and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. And a recovering free speech attorney. As a former free speech attorney, David knows better than anyone. In America, when you're upset, you can pretty much say whatever you want. But he does think there's a point where a protest can go too far. Maybe it's hard to conceive of how dangerous it is until you've been put in a position where you know people know where you live and they don't just disagree with you in the way that faculty panels disagree. They hate you. They hate you. My other guest today is opinion columnist Charles Blow. He says that drawing neat boundaries around what's acceptable protest isn't so simple, partly because protesters themselves aren't so simple. There's so many motives in the boots on the street, and they're not always aligned. And we see them all marching in the same direction, holding some of the same signs, and we assume that they are all completely aligned. So, Charles, you wrote a big piece this last week about the public memorials to George Floyd that went up all over the world during the protests in 2020. And that piece is largely about where the momentum from those protests has gone. So to you, what have been the successes of the movement and what have been the failures? There are quite a few, actually, changes on the local and state level, policy changes. And that should not be overlooked, that without Black Lives Matter, without those protests, those things would likely not have happened. Also, on a personal level, there are a lot of people who experience some sort of personal awakening or conversion or commitments or or recommitments of their lives to egalitarianism and possibly anti-racism or however you define that. The problem was that, which is often the case, it fell short of federal policy. The federal police reform bill fell apart, did not pass. Federal legislation guaranteeing voter protections 
did not pass. And, you know, that that stings a lot for particularly for younger people. You know, I'm 52 years old in August and, you know, I've seen enough cycles and read enough history to know that people sometimes wait you out and they wait for an opportunity not to act rather than to act. But there for a lot of young people who were in that moment and did a lot of work and still do a lot of work and did a lot of marching and did a lot of educating who believed that they were on the precipice of something that was going to be transformational. And they are taught by the American system that that was not what America wants to do, not now, not ever. That every time that it has been changed, it has been grudging, it has often come after massive bloodshed. And so the failure was on the national level. David, what did you make of the protests as they were unfolding? And did you think that they were going to lead to more significant changes at the time? I did not expect national political change for reasons that are both rooted in the history of the issue and that go beyond the history of the issue to the dysfunction sort of of Congress itself. As far as the protests, what I saw was a cycle that occurred. And just to be clear to sort of locate where I am, I am in a very, very red America. So I'm in a suburb of Nashville that I think my neighborhood is something like 85% Republican. So I'm talking every day and the people I communicate with every day are folks who voted for Trump, uh, white evangelicals. And I noticed a cycle and it went like this. Shock at what happened to George Floyd, revulsion at what happened, a brief window of openness to communication, followed by shock at the violence of the protests, and then culminating in where we are now with what you might call a degree of very, very zealous, what is called anti-wokeness. And so there was a complete move from open to closed in the space of slightly less than a year. To the point where, you know, right now in my school district, in the school district where I live, there was a group called Moms for Liberty that was trying to ban from the early elementary education program the book Ruby Bridges Goes to School uh, and the Norman Rockwell painting, The Thing We All Live With, which I thought was kind of the perfect expression of the total full cycle and how now minds have been completely closed in many quarters as part of sort of this movement towards anti-wokeness. Right. So instead of leading to significant changes, it led to the closing of communication. It led to changes, all right, like anti-CRT laws. One thing I keep thinking about is that when we talk about the civil rights movement, which I think for lay people is generally viewed as being an extraordinarily successful form of protest, it didn't feel that way at the time. If you were there for Bloody Sunday or you were there in protests previous, if you were one of the people who is marching outside of theaters that played Birth of a Nation in 1915, if you were involved in the civil rights movement up until about 1962, even 1963, I mean, what the success rate of your protest looked like would feel very different. Stonewall didn't feel like a successful protest. It felt like a terrifying event where the cops had come again. And you see this in protest movements throughout history where only now do you look back and think it worked, you won, it was successful. Well, it doesn't feel that way at the time. And so 
I think my question for both of you is, what is the point of a protest? And how should we think about whether or not a protest is successful? Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought it back to the definition of the word success, because that is the crucial thing here. The Montgomery bus boycott did not change the law, right? That, that didn't change until the Supreme Court stepped in and said, you know, this is unconstitutional. You can't do it. Montgomery was not going to budge. Walk all you want, right? But do we look back and say that was unsuccessful? I think a lot of times what protest does is that it crystallizes and defines the parameters of morality on an issue. It is a narrative setting or changing event. What policymakers, voters, whomever do with that changing of the narrative, crystallizing of a concept is another almost separate step. The protest is a way of giving language to frustration, rage, disappointment, discomfort. And when protests do that, they are, in fact, successful. Yeah, you know, I'm going to agree with something Charles said about how a protest by its very nature can expose or highlight the existence of an issue. So that, you know, if you don't have a platform, if you don't have a column in the New York Times, if you don't have a 10-minute segment on a TV news show, how are you going to expose something that you believe the public and public officials must pay attention to, something you believe is an injustice. And one of the ways to do that is a protest. Also, in some ways, although I think this can be overblown because it's hard to truly persuade with a protest because there's not a lot of, you know, real long conversation going on, but there are ways in which a protest can inspire and persuade. Then there's another thing that protest does. And one thing that protest does is it can punish. It can inflict pain on a person for something that you believe they deserve pain. And that's where you see some of the the response to, so for example, the lockdown protests or anti-mask protests. There wasn't so much a desire to persuade. The issue was about as exposed as it could possibly be, but they wanted people to suffer they wanted people to suffer for what they had done. And in that sense, that form of protest, it doesn't necessarily work to change the mind or heart of the person who's being punished, but a protest can almost always make someone feel discomfort to some extent. If your goal is to punish, you can almost always punish in some way, which is why I would say it's so alluring to some people to want to engage in it. They know they can create discomfort. I mean, but I, I would say that in some ways that the idea that a protest, I think that protest is in general intended to be discomfort, like to make the viewer uncomfortable in some way. I think that that gets at the idea of civility, not even really focusing on what you're protesting, but on the means by which you're protesting. So... David, you were tweeting about a recent Washington Post editorial about protests at Supreme Court justices' homes after the Dobbs draft decision was leaked, and the editorial argued that private homes should be off-limits. And I, I am curious, David, as someone who is opposed to abortion, do you think that if this were a different scenario in which the draft decision had said, like, Roe forever, more abortion, do you think that National Review and Andrew McCarthy and a host of other people would be as offended by protests taking place outside Supreme Court justices' homes? 
I think my former colleagues at National Review would be much more likely to be consistent. As far as the broader right, no, because where were they during these COVID protests at people's homes? Where were they when school board members were being protested at home? So it is a near constant that we are, A, both aware of misconduct or what we perceive to be misconduct from the other side than we are of our own side because it's not reported in our friendly media (laughs) necessarily. And the right-wing media is not replete with stories of open carrying protesters outside of, say, an election worker's home, right? But I think that what we're talking about here is an increasing pattern of protests getting more up close and more personal into removing that sort of professional, personal barrier. And as somebody who's had people come to my home, and I've, I've been protested at work in the sense of going to give a speech at a college and protesters showing up, and there's just a profound difference between the two things. And even if somebody ends up being peaceful, there's something that you immediately know when someone comes to your house. It's that people who don't like me know where I live. And sure, person A, B, and C outside the door may be just annoying, but what about the next person? And to me, it is a profoundly disquieting thing. And it's not just disquieting to the object of the action, say me. What about my kids? What did they do to anybody? What about neighbors? And I get that what people are trying to accomplish here is to try to pressure or trying to intimidate But I have a real problem when the efforts to pressure have a blast radius that reaches to innocent parties. And I've been a free speech lawyer, you know, my entire career until I became full-time in journalism. And I'm very leery of passing laws to limit peaceful protest. So a lot of what I'm talking about is a, a moral argument against going to a person's home as opposed to a blanket legal argument. Charles, what do you think? What should be the boundaries of protest and who should set those boundaries? And how should we think about that? Well, I, I refuse to set the boundaries. This is not some, a place that I feel comfortable. I think that there is a moral relativism on most issues, including on the issue of protest. However, if you believe that what a person is doing is harming other people, innocent people, There is a moral relativism that springs up inside that person, and they may choose a tactic that they would not choose about any other lesser free speech issue. And it is not really my place, I don't believe, to try to figure out where that moral relativism kicks in. If if I am being oppressed and tortured and I rise up and I kill the person who's oppressing and torturing me, killing is wrong. However... There is a moral relativism in that equation, right? And so I just, I feel like we should discuss it in that frame and, at least for me, not feel like I have to draw red lines. I'm just saying that we, in the frame of discussing it, we have to discuss how morality becomes relative even in acts of protest. So I would say in the absence of an immediate self-defense situation, we should not be placing people in reasonable fear for their personal safety, for their lives, for the safety of their families, or 
place innocent bystanders in reasonable fear for their safety. I feel like as a minimum. I think, David, you've touched on my tripwire, which is the reasonableness standard under the law, especially because that seems to be like, well, a reasonable person. I'm like, I have not yet met one. (laughs) Well, you have two guests right here (laughs) on this podcast. You're doing a real tribute to the concept of being reasonable. But please continue. So, for example, I think if there are people who are armed walking around outside your house and they have visible AR-15s, it is reasonable for me to believe that I might be in danger physically and the people in my household might be in danger and my neighbors might be in danger. And so I think if you just begin with that as a line, I do not want to do something that would cause a reasonable person to believe that they're in physical danger, their family's in physical danger, or their neighbors are in physical danger— is going to go a long way towards diffusing some of this more up-close and personal protest. Because the bottom line is, you create that sensation, you create that feeling, and that is inherently destabilizing on multiple fronts. One, it creates a danger of deadly physical confrontation. And the other thing is, if you are achieving policy goals like trying to stop an impeachment of a president, through personal threats and through acts of intimidation. Uh, Well, let me not say threats, because threats would be unlawful. Acts of intimidation or menacing. Um, In many ways, you start to wonder, how much is this undermining democracy itself? The people might want one thing, but if a, a group of people can menace a public official with enough ferocity that they can undermine the will of the people, you're really beginning to undermine the notion of democracy itself. And I know that's not the only axis under which democracy is undermined, obviously, but it is one of them. But, but taking that frame, democracy has been undermined for hundreds of years. Of course, citizens, groups of citizens have menaced public officials in this country for hundreds of years. It's been wrong for hundreds of years. Uh, but, I'm, but I'm saying, if, but if that is your framing of democracy, then When have we had it? Well, we have had real problems in our democracy, but the fact that past performance of menacing uh, has distorted the democracy, I don't think is a justification for continued menacing or it's a metastasization, if I pronounce that correctly, in current, the current political moment where menacing has really gained, I think, momentum. We've had a democracy for about the last 50 years of about you know, whatever, how many, two or 300 years. That's when Black people were allowed to vote. So we never had this democracy. I don't, I, that's when I started to pull my hair out, when people start talking about a democracy that never existed. But then, even if we take the frame that, you know, there's nothing that the Supreme Court could do that would justify us going to their houses and protesting, there's a lot of decisions that I think would have justified it, it just didn't happen. People weren't free enough to do it. I mean, when they made that Dred Scott versus Stanford decision, They should have been outside in front of their houses because what that did, in effect, was to allow years more of killing and maiming and torture of Black people, right? So I'm just saying the intellectual frame for me is not that it cannot ever be justified because it makes them feel unsafe if they do things that put other people in positions that they are unsafe. Right. I want to go back for a second and respond to David's idea of what we find menacing. I remember during some of the protests of 2020, there were African-Americans holding guns in locations across the country where it's legal to do so. And some people, for some reason, found that menacing, perhaps more so than a group of white people doing the same. So I think about that a lot. 
But again, David, I, I, I'm curious about like, and it seems like you did find that menacing, but I am curious when we get into these debates about the appropriateness of protest, the debates about when to protest and when not to protest, I'm concerned that essentially we're telling people that like your concerns have to rise to this particular level before you are permitted to do so. If the Supreme Court were to overturn, I don't know, overturn Loving or overturn Obergefell, I would be outside their homes. I would be. Because my parents probably would be, too, because they are a product of Loving v. Virginia. And I'm sure, David, there would be decisions in which you would contemplate going outside a Supreme Court justice's home, too, perhaps. And I'm curious as to if the issue is so important, if the issue is so critical, then it feels as if the policing, the means of protest seems to be policing how you think about that issue. Is it, though? I mean... So if there was an issue that would lead me to get outside someone's home, it'd be Roe, which has led to death on a very large scale. But I'm not outside people's homes. There have been pro-life protesters who've taken a different approach and have, in fact, menaced and sometimes gone beyond menacing people who work at abortion clinics or abortion doctors at their homes. And I think that's wrong. I, th- I think that's wrong. And so my issue is not a bright line home or no home because homes occur in a million different places. It is, am I attempting to intimidate and menace or am I not? And so the issue that I have with this is we are beginning to move in a situation where menacing and intimidation is a more, and I realize in times past in America, it's been much worse. It's been much worse. But is the trend right now up or down in At least in a lot of the spaces I inhabit, the trend is up, and it is deeply disturbing. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. why the success of a given protest is difficult to measure and whether protests should make us uncomfortable and how much. I want to talk now about when protests meet politics and how our two major parties respond to protests. And we'll start with you, David. 
because I think there's an interesting shift taking place in the way that the right sees and thinks about protests, because we're seeing more direct protesting, the U.S. Capitol riot being one example. Do you see that? So I think there has been a shift, but the shift in the sense of what's old is new again. So if you were going to go back and you're going to look at sort of the George Wallace style of populism, if you're going to look at, for example, protests that you saw against busing or against integration, you saw people in the streets. You saw a very rowdy sort of kind of populism. And then the Republican Party over time became more mainstream, more more chamber of commerce. And chamber of commerce types, they don't hit the pavement, right? They don't they don't get out into the streets. But what you saw with Trump coming along is you saw Trump connecting again with that rowdy populist right. It was in his rallies, you know, where you would see violence in the rally itself uh, during the Trump administration. We began to see more people on the right and the far right actually in the streets. You began to see street battles, for example. And then all of this culminated, well, culminated uh, maybe the wrong word because uh, it could be just the beginning of another bad phase. But all of this, for the time being, sort of culminated in the January 6th moment. And right now on the right, what you see is the people who are more in your face, who are more willing to hit the streets, are the dominant social force in grassroots politics right now on the right. And the people who reject that form of politics or reject that form of activism, they get scorched. Right. It seems as if the type of protest outrage, it seems to work very effectively on Republicans because they are terrified of it in a way that it doesn't seem to work on Democrats quite in the same way. Yeah, I guess yes and no. I mean, you did see a lot of Democratic politicians hewing closer to Black Lives Matter during the height of the protest. You everybody remember the famous Kente cloth kneeling in the Capitol moment. That was know. embarrassing uh, for everyone. Uh, you know, so no yeah, way. <laughs> right. So, that was a bad so that, time. But, but but even on policy, you you heard more talk of it. But what happened was that you have the most popular person in the Democratic Party who is a centrist, and that is Barack Obama, and the people around him telling Democrats, pull it back. And you had the president of the United States also telling people to pull it back. They said it basically in the form of saying, define the police is a horrible slogan. They would say that. Don't say that. Uh, people are afraid. And then you had Biden himself stand up in State of the Union address and say, we don't need Fewer police. We don't need to fund the police. We need more police. And so the difference among Democrats and Republicans is that the most popular person in the Republican Party is Donald Trump. And the most popular person and figures in a Democratic Party are more center left. And so the gravitational pulls within the parties are different, not necessarily that they would naturally respond differently to protest. Well, you know, I do think if you're talking about Republicans, the Republican culture for a long time, sort of has been built up around this idea that they are against us, right? And we're seeing this come out in more extreme ways in kind of the constant grievance and persecution complex you see in right-wing media. But your average Republican politician was sort of built from the ground up to understand that the left is coming for me. 
that's sort of like the easy courage of the right is I don't care what the New York Times editorial page thinks about me. But then what happened in the Trump era was the ferocity of the attacks from the right against Republican politicians. So that it has now sort of entered the stuff of legend that, look, on midnight January 6th, there were an awful lot of Republicans who were ready to get rid of Donald Trump once and for all. And then they got afraid. And so one of the not-so-hidden realities of life on the right in opposition to Trump is this notion that you will be made to pay. And the way you'll be made to pay is not merely you're going to be tweeted about or that somebody's going to give you a thundering denunciation on Fox. It's that somebody might show up at your house or somebody might show up at your kid's school or you might have an ugly, ugly encounter in normal life out in your own community. And that has had a profound effect on the way in which people conduct themselves and conduct politics on the right. And anyone who will tell you otherwise is just gaslighting you because that level of threat and that level of intimidation and menace has become a sort of the background noise of right-wing politics in the age of Trump. Charles, on that point, do you think that the right has been better at metabolizing outrage into specific policy outcomes? Because one of the things I think about with what happened in 2020 was that you had people who were like, we want criminal justice reform, and they got, we will kneel while wearing kente cloth. There was an element of performativity that I think really outraged me and outraged a lot of other people. But I think that you see a lot of performativity taking place on the right, but then it turns into like state-level policy. It turns into we are going to ban CRT, whatever that means, or we're going to pull Ruby Bridges's book from school libraries. I think uh, some of those things are operating simultaneously, but they're not the same, right? So there are mainstream Republican conservative thinkers who have wanted the policies, some of the policies that we now see, for decades. And they are riding a wave to get there. And one of the ways that they ride is a CRT because it animates people to get the right politicians to enact the policy. But what they want is, you know, to limit the voter participation. What they want is to stack the deck of judges on the federal level in ways that they desire. Those are the big, decades-long, long-view policy perspectives of old-school Republicans. They just see that the CRT thing makes people very excited. It's convenient. Yes, it's, it, it's a vehicle. Trump made people very excited. He was a vehicle. He would literally take their list of judges— literally take the list and say, I will appoint from this list. Like, that's all they wanted. So I think it would be kind of short-sighted to say, you know, they know how to marshal outreach. No, that there is a citadel of big brain conservative thinkers who are sitting back saying, something is flashing over here. It can help us with our long-term objectives. And they let it ride. Are they people who believe in all the craziness of Trump? No. Are they people who believe that CRT is the bane of all existence in the end of the world? No. They want judges. They want big policy 
objectives. And they're using that. I just keep thinking about how I keep going back to March for Life, which I think will be termed to be a successful protest movement. But if you were attending March for Life in 1993, right after the Planned Parenthood decision, you'd be like, we failed. This isn't working. Why are we even doing this? And I'm curious, Charles, as to do you have any final thoughts on protest and the nature of protest? Well, I just will reiterate the one line that a successful protest does not always lead to definitive policy change. That a successful protest, first of all, it is for the people who are participating, right? They feel like they need to say something about something that they disagree with or upset about, and they get a chance to do that. On the personal level, that is a successful outlet for them. Collectively, it is saying to anyone watching, whether they be in person or on television or the world, that this is a topic that we, whoever is here, how many ever people that is, a lot of people, care about and that you should care about too. And whether or not people end up caring about it, engage with the topic or not, they have made their statement and they have defined what it is that they are discussing. And that is as a free speech exercise, that is a success. And so I think that we need to think about the next step, which is policy, as in fact a separate step with a separate leg and a separate shoe. But this shoe is giving voice. David, Charles, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Jane, as always. Charles Blow is an opinion columnist for The New York Times. David French is senior editor for The Dispatch and contributing writer at The Atlantic. I recommend the Washington Post editorial, Leave the Justices Alone at Home, published on May 9th. The piece, Protests Might Not Change the Court's Decision, We Should Take to the Streets Anyway, written by my opinion colleague, Jay Caspian Kang, and Do Protests Even Work? by Zainab Tufechki in The Atlantic, published in June 2020. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Litt, Alizi Gutierrez, and Vishaka Derba. Edited by Alison Brujek and Annabelle Bacon. With original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Mary Marge Locker. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta. With editorial support from Christina Samuluski. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.